We've been married 26 years. We have three kids. We raised our kids in the church. My husband's in law enforcement. I work at St. Mary's Hospital in Kankakee. And we're just an average family. When we had kids, we decided that that was it. It was our job to raise them and be there for them. And we always have been. I think I missed one wrestling meet, Sam's entire career in wrestling, and just a couple music events for my other son. The reason that we like to start our story with this image of our family is because mental health just doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter if you are from a broken home or from a complete home, parents who are involved, parents who aren't involved. It doesn't matter, black, white, Hispanic, it, it just doesn't matter. And I think our society has created some kind of stigma around that. We just want everyone to know that it can happen to any family. We are all on a journey. We are all at different points on our journey. And that's okay. I'm Steph Reynolds, Director of Partner Care for Shine.fm. The purpose of our journey is simple, but sometimes difficult. Keep moving forward, becoming more like Jesus. Mental illness. We often avoid talking about it. With one in four people affected with mental illness, it's now a part of our everyday lives. This is Shine 180. Stories of lives transformed by God because of your faithfulness. Here is Sam's story. When Sam was born, we called him our little firecracker because he was just so energetic and so happy and so loving. He had a huge heart. He was just the light of the room. If he were to come into a room, he left and he was everybody's friend by the time he left. Very active. He was a true athlete. He played 16 seasons of indoor and outdoor football. He was a state qualifying wrestler. He went to state twice. He was all city three times had lots of friends, had a girlfriend, had 120 IQ, just had what seemed everything going for him. But when he was about in eighth grade, I noticed some changes kind of happening in him. At the time, my husband worked for the State Department, and he was stationed in Kabul, Afghanistan, and he would be gone for nine weeks. And one of the times he was gone, I noticed Sam had some odd behaviors, like if he touched his elbow on something, he would have to touch his other elbow on something. And when I asked him about it, he almost didn't even realize that he was doing it. My husband came home. I asked him, hey, watch Sam. See if you're noticing these things. And he said, yeah, I'm noticing them. So we got him to his doctor. She suggested a psychiatrist. She said it sounds like he might have obsessive compulsive disorder. So we took him to the psychiatrist, and he was diagnosed with severe obsessive compulsive disorder with intrusive thoughts and also severe anxiety. And those two normally kind of go hand in hand. Um, Obsessive compulsive disorder is kind of used flippantly in our society. You know, I like my desk neat. Oh, I'm so OCD. But it's when it starts really affecting your everyday life that it's actually diagnosed as OCD. Um, There's different forms of it. Sometimes people wash their hands, lock, unlock doors, lights on and off. But Sam's was the number four. For whatever reason, I don't know. I don't understand it. I don't know why his mind was working like that. But the intrusive thoughts would come, so he would have to perform these rituals or count something or rectify something that wasn't the number four. And if he couldn't do that, then it would create all kinds of anxiety for him, and he had lots of digestive issues because of that. And sometimes, if he couldn't rectify the four, he would blow up, and he would just the anxiety would overtake him, and he would you know, maybe leave class or yell at somebody or you know, different outbursts like that. And the intrusive thought part of it was that if he didn't perform these rituals, that something bad would happen to his father. And my husband was in law enforcement, so he was afraid his dad was going to die or get injured. And he knew logically, if you were to talk to him, that there was no connection between those two things. Then he would say, but I have to do it. I, I have to. So I can explain to you a little bit about 
the first five minutes of his day just so you can kind of get a grasp of his everyday life. He told me he would wake up in the morning and he would squeeze his hands four times. Then he would bring his feet out of the bed and tap his feet four times on the floor. He would take eight steps from his bedroom to his bathroom, spin around four times, go into the bathroom, flush the toilet four times, brush his teeth in four increments, walk down the steps, just either four, eight, or 12 steps he would touch. He would get to his car and spin around four times. He would get in the car, turn it on and off four times, and then his radio would have to be at a volume increment of four. So then from there, he would go to school. He would have to have relationships with his friends and his teachers and his girlfriend and be able to listen to what the teacher was saying, remember his homework, you know, go to work, go to wrestling practice or football practice, compete, come home, have relationships with us. And on top of all of that, he did not want anyone to know that he was suffering with this. And so he also had to hide that. So there's so much pressure on him at, at a young age. The overwhelming pressures of hiding your mental so, illness, the isolation that engulfs the entire family, the constant search for answers. He was diagnosed and we were getting him to therapy. It's called cognitive behavioral therapy, where they try to kind of retrain your brain into not going into those loops of counting. And But the difficulty with counseling and therapists and those types of things is you can't just walk into a room, meet a doctor, tell them every single deep, dark secret you have, and all's good. You have to be able to trust the physician that you're talking with. And it's more of a personality, kind of like when you're in a relationship with your spouse or a girlfriend. You have to have that connection. And so Sam cycled through about four or five different psychiatrists and ended up finding a really good one, but not until the summer of the year he passed away. Same thing with therapist, on and off, trying to find one he trusted and liked. And, and it was almost like if they didn't understand what he was going through, he would just shut down and say, forget it, I, I need somebody new. We also went through seven different medication regimens. None worked for him. We found one medication to help his um, bipolar, but which he was diagnosed with later, but it made his OCD a thousand times worse. So after about two and a half years of struggling, trying to figure things out, doctors and medications and therapy and everything, and hiding it from everybody, it started to get really bad. He ended up quitting football because he couldn't handle the pressure. You know, the anxiety would cause this disruption in his head if he couldn't correct the four thing. Like if he would look down the line of scrimmage and everybody's toe wasn't the same distance from the line, he would mess up because the anxiety of, oh my goodness, everybody's line isn't, toe isn't the same distance from the line. And it caused this disruption in his thinking. And then he would mess up, like forget the play or run the wrong way. And then also football is in increments of five, of five yards. And it would bother him and cause that disruption if he had to run eight yards or, you know, 10 yards instead of 12 yards. So he ended up quitting football. And, and that's when we knew, okay, this is really affecting his everyday life. He ended up wrestling through his junior year, but after his junior year, he just said, I, I can't do it anymore. That was difficult because here was this child who always was happy and vibrant, great friend, great employee, great son, great brother, you know, great grandson. And he was just losing everything he felt like. Like he loved being an athlete that went to the wayside. He loved being the center of attention more or less. And he couldn't be that anymore because of the ticks that he had. He continued to work, so now he was just going to school and working. And But then probably by his junior year after wrestling, he just was done. He was done trusting us. 
done trusting the doctors, done trusting the fact that they might find something to help him. He also had kind of kind of pushed his friends away, the friends he had had his whole life, partly because they wouldn't leave things alone when it came to why are you, you know, tapping your feet? Why are you shuffling your feet? Why are you turning that way? Why are you tapping that? And so he would say, I don't have to tell them. And we would say, you're right. You don't have to tell them, but you can't get mad at them, you know, for not calling you to do things. So he pulled away from all of those friends and started kind of hanging around another group of friends. Well, at the beginning, I was really nervous because they weren't the typical people, you know, they weren't the athletes, good grades. They were more of, you know, I don't want to say troublemakers because I didn't really know them, but that was the assumption I made of them. And so he was introduced to Pat. So he started smoking and he was telling us, you know, this puts the OCD at the back of my mind, not the front of my mind. It makes me much calmer. And we honestly didn't know what to do. We don't do drugs. We don't go out to bars. We, I mean, we just, I'm not judging those people. I'm just saying, you know, it was, it was not part of our lifestyle. And so we were really nervous and scared and we didn't know what to do. We were going through the weeds of this mental health stuff that we had never dealt with before. So we were asking doctors, you know, what should we do? He's saying it makes him feel better. And, you know, everything you've given him for the past three years has not made him feel better. And we were told by every person we talked to, every professional, that it was not a good idea because his brain isn't fully developed, because you don't really know kind of what you're getting sometimes. So we kind of thought, well, maybe medicinal marijuana. And they said, well, like we said, it it creates paranoia. It can create higher anxiety. And again, his brain is not fully developed. So we encouraged him not to do that, but he continued to because it gave him relief. It gave him a sense of, I can take a breath. And now that Sam has passed, I know that feeling because there are days that I want to get off this ride of my son passing and I just want to be able to take a breath, but I can't. Like an amusement park ride that never seems to end, desiring nothing more than a brief moment of peace, the story continues to unfold. In the summer of 2016, we went on a family vacation and a lot had happened between me and Sam and his father and where he was getting in trouble with the police because he was smoking to feel better and then he would make horrible decisions when he was high and then he would not be high and be thinking, my goodness, what have I done? Now I have all this to deal with. But I remember we had planned a vacation to go to Walt Disney World because my daughter had never been there. And my son, oldest son, Damon, was moving to Indiana for a job because he had graduated college. And Sam had graduated high school. And I remember his little face was, I mean, I know he was 19, but it was like this little boy. I said, well, son, did you ask off work? Because, you know, we're going to leave on Memorial Day. And he looked at me with these eyes and they were full of tears. And he said, you want me to go? And I said, of course I want you to go. Why would you not go? You're a part of our family. And he said, because I know, I know I'm a problem. I know that I make everybody's life difficult. And it just broke my heart because here's this boy who he just wants to be okay. And he doesn't know how to get there. Now, one saving grace in the whole thing is that my son knew Jesus and that I know that he's in heaven. And so I can, I can make it through the day because I know he's not in that type of pain anymore. He had moved out of our house a few times because he didn't want to follow the rules. And I know that might sound a little cold to some people, but we really didn't want to enable his behavior. He was bringing drugs in the house and my daughter is adopted. We were scared about losing her. My husband's in law enforcement. We were scared about him losing his job. And so we would say, 
if you do this, this is what will happen. And he would make those choices anyway. And so we had to stand our ground and tell him, when you graduate high school, you're not going to be able to live here if you're going to continue these choices. And so he moved out, kind of moved couch to couch for a month or so. And then he landed at my parents' house, which I'm so grateful for them. And I think it was really a sweet, special time for my parents. You know, now that Sam has passed, he lived there with them. And when Sam moved in with my parents, he had a friend who also was struggling. And so he had asked my parents if his friend could move in as well. And my parents, of course, said yes, because they're the kindest people you'll ever meet. (laughs) I felt like my son did that because that was his personality. He had a heart for people. He saw his friend struggling and wanted to find a place for him as well. But in September, my parents were going to go on a very long vacation, and they were leery about leaving the two boys at their house. We came up with a plan that they were going to have to find another place to live. We told Sam he could come to our house, but we weren't going to allow his friend to come. And Sam said, well, I can't I can't leave him high and dry. I'm sticking by his side, and, and we'll figure it out. And so Sam was trying to get a place. He was trying to get an apartment, and that fell through because one of the times that he had gotten in trouble, he had been arrested, and he had pending felony charges for stealing out of someone's car. It's hard for me to say that out loud because It hurts so much because I know that's not who he was. He was just someone who was struggling and trying to figure it all out, making bad choices because of that vicious cycle of, I have mental health issues. I can't find anything to help me, so I'm going to smoke because that's the only thing that helps me. And then in turn, I'm going to make these horrible decisions. And then in turn, I'm going to, you know, because of my smoking, I do that because of my mental health issues. And now it just was a vicious cycle that went on and on. Again, this sounds mean, but we finally told Sam and his friend that they could live in our garage. And they were ecstatic. (laughs) And I feel bad saying that, but I knew Sam wasn't going to leave his friend. But I also knew that I couldn't have his friend living in our house as well. And so they moved into the garage, and it's just, oh my goodness, I was so embarrassed about that. But I, I wanted my son to be safe and have a place to stay. And it was summer and fall, and so it wasn't that big of a deal. So every morning I'd wake up and I'd go out to the garage, come on in boys, have some breakfast, take a shower, and then they would have to leave back into the garage and then I would lock the door and go to work. But then his friend's sister had bought a house. She had told him that he could move in with her. And so he did. And Sam was devastated. For the average person, that probably wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But for Sam, it really hurt him because he was thinking, I stuck by your side and now... You know, you're just going to walk away from me. Not that they weren't friends, but that kind of happened. And I could see hindsight now that was the beginning of his demise. As parents, we want nothing more than to surround our children with love, to protect them and keep them safe. Then the heartache of realizing that isn't always possible. So after his friend moved out, we told Sam, you can move back into our house. And so he moved back in and he was very grateful and I could see he was struggling with what he was going to do with his life. And we said, no matter what happens at court, it's okay. We'll make it through. And so they got the felony charge dropped. So he had two misdemeanors, and then he had to have a year's court supervision. Well, the year's court supervision was a lot for him, a lot of anxiety because he knew he was going to have to be on his best behavior, and he knew he wasn't going to be able to smoke marijuana. And then that was a lot of anxiety for him because no other meds had helped him. We said, no big deal. We'll get your court fees paid. You can pay us back. 
and we can do this. So we ended up finding a program for him, community college for free for two years because he had a mental health issue. He had brought those papers to a psychiatrist. He had signed them. Sam had goals like short-term, medium-term, and long-term goals. And so we were starting to feel like, okay, well, maybe he's getting a little bit more mature, understanding his mental health issue, and that he's going to take responsibility for it and do what he needs to do. But then he ended up, his car broke down. So he took all the money he had saved and he bought another car because he delivered for a local restaurant and that was his job. And if he didn't have a car, he couldn't do that. So he bought that car, spent every dime he had, and and within two weeks, that car broke down. And so he had this $1,000 pending that he owed, which to us was a drop in the bucket, but to him, it was a mountain. Um, He really liked to be self-sufficient and he didn't he didn't like owing people and, you know, oh, having people do things for him. It bothered him. So he had the $1,000 fine. He had a year's court supervision. His friend had moved out. Both of his cars broke down, so he lost his job. And he just felt like that was a mountain that he couldn't overcome. So the Sunday before he passed away, he and me and my daughter were playing Uno. He just looked at me and he said, Mom, I can't do this. And I said, you can't do what? And he just broke down and started crying really hard. So my husband came up and got Liberty. He and I had a four-hour-long conversation just about how he was feeling and what was going on in his head and all the things that had happened to him in a very short period of time. I told him, son, you cannot end your life. And he said to me on Sunday, I would never do that, Mom. I would never choose suicide it's too much for you and for dad, and I would never do it. It would, it would break you guys. And I said, you're right, it would, and it's not the answer. We will get through it. I know it's hard, and it seems like we're not going to, but we will. And that was on Sunday. The rest of the week was a pretty good week. He seemed to be in a good mood and, and seemed to be okay. Like I said, he had turned in those college papers to the doctor to sign. He was looking for another job. He just seemed like maybe he was at peace. If you live with someone who struggles with mental health issues, you take a good day if it's a good day because sometimes they're few and far between. And so we were thinking, my husband and I together, hey, maybe things are turning around. So then on Saturday, December 10th, he kind of got in a little argument with someone on Twitter or Facebook or some kind of social media, and he was kind of upset. And so we went upstairs and you know we were trying to talk to him and he's like, it's fine, it's fine, I'm I'm okay, just let me cool down. And we said, okay. And my husband was going to go to the store. So my husband left and took our daughter just in case things kind of went haywire at home. I then took Sam to his job to get his last check. We talked a lot about stuff, about his goals. And he's like, yeah, I have goals and this is what I'm planning on doing. And I said, okay, that sounds great. And we got some lunch and he came home with me and we were just chit-chatting about funny stories and just hindsight of course now I see that like he was saying goodbye but I didn't know it at the time so about four o'clock he said he was going to head out and hang out with some friends and I said okay he gave me a hug I love you I'll see you later and I always said to my sons make good choices always and he said I will mom and he left the house so I was in the kitchen and I didn't see the front door so I, I didn't really know if someone picked him up or if he was walking I wasn't really sure so right after that my husband got home Within 10 minutes, the police were at our door, and they said they were looking for Sam. And we said, well, why? What's going on? And they said, well, he just held somebody up at gunpoint and stole some marijuana. 
And my husband and I both were like, eh, it's probably not Sam. Even though he was making poor choices, like that was above and beyond anything Sam would ever do. Like he never wanted to hurt someone. And he said, no, we have it on video from someone's security camera. Um, It's Sam. And so he said, please try to get a hold of him. We said, okay. So we shut the door and I looked at my husband and I said, he just held somebody up at gunpoint. I, I don't understand what's happening. And he said, I need to go make sure that's not my gun. So my husband does have guns in the house uh, because he's in law enforcement, but he has, from day one, been very careful. He had all of his guns in a gun locker downstairs in the basement, locked with keys, and the keys to that safe were locked in another safe that was under our bed, which we didn't even think Sam knew about. And so he ran downstairs to check that, and I ran upstairs to Sam's room, I don't know, just to maybe see if I could figure out where he was or who he was with. I found a stack of suicide letters. There were seven of them, um, six to family and one to a friend. As I ran downstairs, my husband ran upstairs, and my husband was ghost white, and he said, it's my gun. We were in disbelief, but we called the police back, and we told them that we found these letters. It was my husband's gun, and they said, okay, you know, we'll put out an APB. And we said, you know, listen, you need to understand that Sam doesn't act this way. He has some mental health issues that he's struggling with, and I don't think he's in his right mind. And we're fearful about what he's going to do because we never thought he would do this. And so he said, okay. They left, and my husband got on the phone with Sprint and starts, you know, saying, can you please look up his account? You know, who is he calling? And as he was writing numbers down, I was calling those numbers saying, you know, I don't know what your relationship is with Sam. I don't even know who you are, but please, you got to help us. We're afraid Sam's going to hurt himself. We need to find him as soon as possible. And so everyone we talked to said, okay, we'll, we'll tell friends, we'll spread the word. And so that night it had started snowing severely. And my husband and four of Sam's buddies just went out looking for Sam, driving around, trying to call people. And I stayed home just in case he came home. But before my husband left the house, we called Sam and he answered. And I said, Sam, where are you? Dad's going to come and get you. And he said, no, I'm hanging out with some friends. And I said, no, really, we need to come and get you. The police were here, and they're looking for you, and we need to get you home. And he said, no, Mom, I'm hanging with friends. I'll be home later. I love you. And he hung up. And that was the last time that we spoke to him. The desperate struggle to find Sam, to know that he is safe, the panicked desires of parents wanting so much just to have him at home. We were pinging his phone through Sprint, and it was probably about four miles north of our house, but it was a mile radius from the ping. And so he could have been anywhere in that mile radius. So they searched until about two in the morning with no avail. My husband came home and for the next four days, my husband and I searched for him. We didn't really know what else to do. Of course, we used social media and we had flyers that we were handing out and we had good friends and family that were helping us and Sam's friends. We would call them and say, We don't care what you were doing at this location, but tell us where to look. And so they went through every place that they hung out, every place that they'd ever gone. I mean, my husband and I were in snow pants and boots and hats and coats, looking through brush and looking under bridges and in abandoned buildings, and we just couldn't find him. And we were desperate. And at that time, we were a little bit upset about how law enforcement was handling it because he was 19. And they were saying, well, he's 19. If he wants to leave, he can leave. And, you know, there's really nothing we can do about it. I just think they didn't know the severity of his mental health issues and and how out of character it was for him. 
to have done this stuff. So finally on December 13th, on Tuesday, about 1.30, we had called the friends and said, let's start again. Where can we look? Tell us again. And they told us about a certain bridge and then they told us about some buildings. So my husband and I went to the bridge. I started going down underneath the bridge and I was kind of looking to see like where the ground kind of met up with the bridge. You know, it's kind of dark under there. And I thought maybe he had tucked himself in there trying to stay warm. I didn't see anything. And as I turned around, I looked across the bank and I saw him uh, lying there. I don't remember a lot about that day, but my husband just said, I, I just started screaming and just came up back up to the bridge. And he said, he assumed I saw something. And so he went down underneath the bridge as well. And he didn't see anything. And at that point, he was saying to himself, my wife and I haven't slept for four days. She hasn't eaten for four days. She's hallucinating now. But as he turned around to come back up the bridge, like me, he had looked across the bank and saw our son there. And it was interesting because now that I look at it, a lot of times people say, I'm so sorry you were the one to find him. And yes, it is hard. And I've been through a lot of therapy to try to get through that. But I feel like it's also a blessing because I was there this day Sam was born and I found him, you know, the last days that he was here. And so I do kind of look at that as a blessing. I also do feel like God blessed us because it was snowing. A lot of him was covered with snow, but I knew it was him because I knew what he was wearing. So my husband called the police and they came out and kept us safe and guarded. They had to get Sam into the ambulance and um, they didn't want us to see all that, but I couldn't leave as well. They were very kind because we grew up, you know, our kids grew up with some of the guys that were there. Their kids grew up with our son. And so they were very kind to us. So we ended up going home. And like I said, I don't really remember a lot about that day, but I do know that there were so many people that were praying for our family and, and supporting our family. We attend Cornerstone Church and Pastor Bob Grison above and beyond him and his wife, Sherry, just were so gracious to us. And we really appreciate that because we've never been through anything like that. And it was, we just kind of were zombies and they just guided us through it all. So at Sam's funeral, we had probably over 1,200 people came through. They had to extend the services, the visitation for two extra hours. When Sam was alive, he didn't want anyone to know that he had these mental health struggles. And so we honored that. But I do feel like maybe now, that was a disservice to him because I feel like if he were, were able to share that with people, maybe it would have made it a little bit easier to handle because I really don't think that kids would have cared. I think they would have been like, okay, dude, no big deal. You're still my friend because the few friends that he did share it with, they didn't care and they loved him anyway. Almost everyone who came through the line said, I had no idea. He always seemed so happy. He always was making other people happy. Um, we had people come from... Oberweiss, that was one of the places that he worked. A customer who was probably in his 70s, and he said, I went to Oberweiss just to talk to Sam. And so, I mean, he's a, just a 19-year-old kid, but he made people feel so good about themselves. There was another story that we were told that a gentleman went into the restaurant Sam worked at, and he said, it was one of the worst days of my life, just a really crappy day, and I went in just to maybe relax for a minute before I went home and get my head on clear. And he said, here came this curly-haired kid with a ball cap on, said, hey, how are you doing? And he said, I ended up talking to him for a couple hours, and we were just laughing and joking. And he said, I left feeling so good. I didn't know those things. And so that just made me feel really good that Sam was willing and able to bring joy to other people's lives. But what really touched my heart the most about the wake and funeral was that 
all of Sam's friends said we could never get him to shut up about God. He would share God and Jesus and his relationship with them all the time. His friends said we ended up with having to say enough about God, Sam. <laughs> but I think that was, you know, important for me to know because it really helps kind of heal my heart. Only through the hope found in Jesus Christ are we able to overcome the tragic grief experienced through the loss of a child. With this hope, we press on. After Sam passed, probably two days after he passed, my husband and I decided that we had to do something because you're kind of left with sadness and grief and, you know, unknown. You don't know what to do with yourself. You, you're just kind of walking around in a fog. And so we decided to start the Samuel R. Myers Foundation for Suicide and Mental Health Awareness. And what our goal is, is just to educate people about mental health issues, about the struggles maybe that people have, the behaviors they have, also to educate them that it's okay. It's very common. And it doesn't mean that you're a weirdo. It doesn't mean that you know, you have huge issues and also that there is hope that you can live a productive life even though you're living with mental health issues. We connected with a program, uh, another foundation in Chicago called Project 375, and they've been tremendous to us. The founders of that is Brandon Marshall and his wife, and he's a professional football player, he used to play for the Bears, and my son adored him. And I think one of the reasons why is because he also lives with mental health issues. It's just interesting. And I think very important to see someone who is successful come out and be open about his struggles because then it it shows, hey, maybe I can do this. I can remember we watched a show about Brandon Marshall's life on inside the NFL or something. And I remember my son saying, maybe I can make it after watching that. And it just, it just broke my heart. One of the things that my husband and I lean on is Christ. I don't know how anyone would make it through this difficult situation without Christ. Sam's favorite verse was Philippians 4.13, which was, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he actually had that tattooed on his arm. My husband gave him a coin when he was really struggling, and it had that verse on it. And Sam carried it with him always, had it in his shoe at wrestling, had it in his pocket at football or in his sock. He always had it with him. I lean on that verse now. The other verse I lean on is James 1, 2, and 3, just about how trials and tribulations we need to look at as pure joy. And someone who isn't a Christian or maybe people who even are Christians would say, you know, how is this joy in your life? How can you even look at the situation and come up with the emotion joy? What I feel about that, and it hasn't been easy getting there because there were times that I was very angry at God because I believe in a God who can perform miracles, that he could have pointed to my son and said, heal him. I do believe that happens. But it took me a while to get past being angry about why he didn't. But I feel like I see today and that God sees the entire picture. And so maybe what I don't understand today, I'll understand that later. I feel like Sam's story and us sharing his story is helping to continue Sam's influence on people, even if it's only one person that I meet in heaven because of Sam's story, then I'm okay with that because I know Sam is in heaven. And I just think it's important that we continue to use our grief the way God wants us to use it and that God's words and wisdom come through us and through Sam's story.
What we've always said to each other is God makes beauty from ashes. When we go to speak to people and educate them about mental health issues, law enforcement, teachers, students, anyone who will listen to us, that's what we think, that God's going to take the ashes of our son's death and he's going to create something beautiful out of it. So that's our goal. God makes beauty from ashes, never the same, never quite whole. God begins the healing process. Music has always been a part of my life. I've always listened to music. It's very emotional for me. And after Sam passed away, I could not listen to the radio. I couldn't listen to music. I couldn't listen to any kind, Christian, non-Christian, anything, because it just broke me. I, every time I would turn it on, one of the songs would break me, and I would just cry and spiral, and, and I just couldn't do it. And I don't know how people believe about this, but I had a dream about Sam. In the dream, he was dancing and singing, like pulling my hands to dance and sing with him. And I kept saying, no, no. But he pulled me up and and he was dancing and singing. And there was a huge crowd around him and everybody's cheering. And, and I felt like it was Sam saying to me, mom, let music heal you. And so the very next day, I said, I have to listen to music. And I turned the radio on, and I just let the tears flow, and it has healed my heart so much. For example, when my husband and I go to speak, I truly feel like the devil whispers in my ear. Nobody wants to hear my story, and who would want to listen to my advice or what I have to say because my, my son ended his life, and my story ended badly. The song from J.J. Weeks, let them see you um, comes to my mind every time because I feel like it's God saying, one, the devil lost when it came to Sam because my son is in heaven. And two, it's God they're hearing, not me. God's using my story, yes. He's using me as a vessel, yes. But it's God's words that I'm sharing. It's my experience with God in my life that I'm sharing. And I'm letting God use me to do his work. God can use the most difficult, unthinkable situations of our lives. Through grief, confusion, frustration, comes healing, purpose, and hope. This was Shine 180, Sam's story. I'm Steph Reynolds, Director of Partner Care at Shine.fm. Your story matters. Your story offers hope and encouragement to others. Share your story today by calling 855 987 9866. That's 855-987-9866. Shine 180. Stories of lives transformed by God because of your faithfulness.